0: Greetings. Uh, This is Roger Kimball, editor of the New Criterion, and I'm speaking to you from our world headquarters in New York. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our October 2019 issue, which is winging its way to readers all across the globe as I speak. Now, in October, we have some essays and, and reviews that you will not want to miss Leading off the pack is "Lenin Think by Gary Saul Morrison. This is the text of the lecture he delivered in New York recently, our first circle lecture designed to appeal to the circle of new criterion friends. It is the first in what we hope will be an annual event, and I hope that you all, uh, all of the listeners here, uh, will have been able to catch that catch that lecture. It was really quite something. You also want to take account of a terrific essay by Jacob Holland about Borges, a really superlative essay by Bill McClay on loyalty and defense of loyalty, and finally an excerpt from D.J. Taylor's new book on Orwell called 1984, A Biography. Now let me read you from our notes and comments in October. We have four of them this month. The first is called, Ain't That a Shame? What is shame? In the Nicomachean Ethics, Aristotle regards shame, eidos, as a feeling that must be kept in proper balance. Too little shame, and the brazen will say or do anything with no respect for the opinions of others. Too much shame, and the bashful will not speak up in the face of opposing views, even to do what is right. Shame is not a virtue in itself, but a good sense of shame helps us distinguish between virtue and vice. This sense is especially important for the young, who might be otherwise prone to do shameful things were it not for their flushed, embarrassed faces. As we age, a healthy sense of shame ultimately directs us away from the shamefulness as we grow to understand virtue. Quote, whilst shame keeps its watch, writes Edmund Burke in the Reflections on the Revolution in France, virtue is not wholly extinguished in the heart. Is there any doubt that culture today has lost this balance of shame? Just do it, we are told. Be yourself from educators to advertisers, entire industries exhort us to express supposedly suppressed urges and identities by ignoring our natural feelings of shame. In the West, we have been hearing such misdirection since the 1960s. In a flash, the social norms that helped us understand shame were actively abandoned, all with disastrous consequences. In the name of self expression, self empowerment, self actualization, and whatever other form of selfish sophistry, the traditions of shame that we once found around divorce or raising children out of wedlock or other failures to family, community, and true self were counseled out, medicated away, or straight up ignored. The result has been a society in which more and more is permitted but less and less is allowed how is this possible just ask vladimir lenin stripping us of our inward conscience the radical left steps in to impose a new outward consciousness our sense of shame is replaced by a culture of shaming in lenin think this month's lead essay and the subject of his talk for our inaugural circle lecture Gary Saul Morrison writes about how such reversals of shame are built into the very design of communist ideology. Lenin worked by a principle of anti-empathy, Morrison explains, and this approach was to define Soviet ethics. I know of no other society except those modeled on the one Lenin created, where schoolchildren were taught that mercy, kindness, and pity are vices after all, these feelings might lead one to hesitate shooting a class enemy or denouncing one's parents end quote. the soul-denying experiment of Marxism Leninism demands shamelessness from its adherents and uses shame to impose this political discipline. The more ruthless and indiscriminate and inward turning the shaming, the more assured such actions stay true to party doctrine. Quote, what is new and uniquely horrible about the Soviets and their successors, Morrison writes, is that they directed their fury at their own people. From the show trials of the 1930s on through Stalin's mass purges and denunciations, the use of political shame to impose shamelessness, and the shamelessness required to expunge personal shame has been a hallmark of socialist terror. In China, Chairman Mao made a high art out of public shame. Everywhere from workplaces to stadiums, China's cultural revolution choreographed elaborate struggle sessions to torture and shame class enemies. Those who denied their crimes and pleaded their innocence were, of course, regarded by the Marxists as the most guilty. One favorite spectacle was to force professors to balance on stools in the sports arenas of their universities. The Maoists hung classroom blackboards around their necks and wrote out their names and supposed crimes in chalk. Anything sound similar to the campus struggles sessions of today? The revolution eats its own. It is now mainly liberal professors who find themselves dragged before tribunals or simply denounced on the quad for supposed slights against the latest iteration of race, class, and sexual doctrine. A similar fervor now extends to all corners of contemporary life. Much of social media and the news cycle revolve around this call-out culture and its forensic analysis of one's supposed transgressions. Shaming words also become shaming actions. Political non-believers now find themselves pelted with eggs and covered with liquids, with videos of their milkshaking made available online for further mocking. Diners have been hounded out of restaurants. As in the recent assault of the journalist Andy Ngo by an Antifa mob in Portland, Oregon, such leftist violence is turning increasingly vicious. Some 15 years ago, we had occasion to comment on Martha Nussbaum's hiding from humanity, disgust, shame, and the law. Back then, Professor Nussbaum, an epitome of everything politically correct, was dead set against the practice of stigmatizing or shaming certain attitudes or behavior because they departed from traditional canons of morality or mannerly conduct. But as far as we know, Professor Nussbaum, along with many other soi-disant supporters of liberal values, has not been on the barricades defending the victims of Antifa and the squads of academic scolds that have made the academy so inhospitable a place for learning. Instead of being famous for 15 minutes, as a certain wit once promised, the future seems determined to make each of us the focus of the two minutes hate of George Orwell's 1984. Quote, The rage that one felt was an abstract, undirected emotion, Orwell writes, of the daily shaming ritual, which could be switched from one object to another like the flame of a blow lamp. The object of ire is ultimately meaningless. What matters is the display of denunciation and the pitiless scorn that must be arbitrarily shown. D.J. Taylor has more to say about Orwell later in this issue. What a shame. In shameless times, it is these shamers who should be the most ashamed. Marching right along. The long march through the institutions continues apace, this time with a storming of the galleries of the Whitney Museum of American Art. As Herbert Marcuse wrote in Counter-Revolution and Revolt, radicals now work against the established institutions while working within them. This past summer, the New York Museum found itself on the wrong side of history when artist protesters zeroed in on a board member who had given millions to the institution, but whose business dealings did not conform to their political standards. In his letter of resignation to his fellow board members, the trustee Warren B. Canders expressed little understanding of our radical age as he was fed to the mob. Quote, Art, as I know it, is not intended to force one-sided answers or to suppress independent thinking. And yet, these recent events have illustrated how a single narrative created and sustained by groups with a much larger and more insidious agenda can overwhelm that spirit. Did Mr. Canders really think his Jeff Coons would save him from revolutionary justice? Over the years, we have had our differences with the Whitney Museum. We would be hard-pressed to identify a Whitney Biennial we much cared for. The new downtown headquarters is also more showpiece than showcase, which is too bad, given the Whitney's solid examinations of American modernism. But the episode reminds us of the civil war that is now waging between the neoliberal establishment, represented by the progressive flag-waving Whitney, and a resurgent radical left. Mr. Canders could have been anyone, and he will be far from the last victim if the left continues this way. The real target here is the American system of philanthropy, and the free association of its private boards, which have long drawn leftist ire. Canders was a target of opportunity, just like the late David Koch, or the Sackler family, or now the real estate mogul, Stephen Ross. Under director Adam Weinberg, the Whitney showed a failure of leadership in allowing the protests to continue, just as the institution two years before permitted grumblers to censor one of its paintings. Neoliberals always believe they can outflank the rhetoric of the left while maintaining the prerogatives of the center. Next time, they suggest send the radicals packing. Victor at last. Regular readers of the New Criterion will be familiar with the work of Victor Davis Hansen, the classicist, military historian, professor, and sage of the American agricultural experience. Victor has appeared regularly in our pages for years, first in 2002, enumerating the lessons that the Duke of Wellington can still teach us, and most recently, this month, examining the nature of farming in 18th century America. Recognizing Victor's myriad achievements, too numerous to list in this short space, The New Criterion bestowed upon him our sixth Edmund Burke Award for service to culture and society in 2018. We are now thrilled to announce that our association with this great scholar has been made even more official. Owing to the generosity of the Gilder Foundation, Victor has been named the inaugural visiting critic at the New Criterion for this publishing season. In this position, He will contribute essays to the magazine on the role of citizenship in American democracy, an increasingly important topic, and one about which he is currently writing a book. He will also participate in events with the Friends of the New Criterion. Victor's learned and engrossing analysis is vital to understanding our cultural moment, and we at the New Criterion are proud to welcome him as our first visiting critic. Nothing to Fear. While Halloween usually presents an unedifying spectacle of adults behaving like children in ridiculous costumes, something wicked this way comes indeed, this year a much-beloved tale of the paranormal will be republished. On October twenty-ninth, Criterion Books, an imprint of Encounter Books, will release a new edition of Old House of Fear, the first novel by the visionary conservative thinker Russell Kirk, originally published in 1961. Drawing on his time at the University of St. Andrews, where he was the first American to earn a doctorate of letters, Kirk sets his story in the Outer Hebrides, where foul dealings are afoot. Most of our readers know Kirk as a conservative lodestar, but Old House of Fear shows a different side of his genius. Bolshevik mystics, Irish Republicans, and an enchanting ingenue populate the scene. To say more would be to spoil the pleasure of reading this ghoulish story from a master of the mystery genre. We founded Criterion Books to give voice to worthy publications outside the vagaries of the New York Times bestseller list, and we are delighted to bring this tale back into print. With a new introduction by our own James Pinero, This edition is sure to thrill.